0: Testosterone, it's a relationship to the prostate. Today, I have the great pleasure of having a discussion with Dr. Mohi Kara, who is a faculty member at Baylor Medical Center in Houston. Dr. Kara is a specialist in urology, but more specifically in men's health, testosterone replacement, and erectile dysfunction. He's been doing some great work in the field of testosterone. He's written hundreds of scientific papers on the topic. I consider Dr. Mohikara one of the top um, urologists and just general thinkers and specialists in testosterone, in the molecule, what does it do to your body, and its relationship to the prostate. And that's what we talk about on this podcast episode we talk about you know w- what is testosterone where does uh, where are these receptors for testosterone what kind of effects does it have to the body um some of the controversies with testosterone and of course what does it do to the prostate including prostate cancer today's episode on testosterone and the prostate with dr mohit kara let's go <laughs> Welcome to the Dr. Gio Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Gio, where we look to improving your prostate health and how to live better with age. Um, Mohit, already had an intro before uh, this, uh, uh, having you on right now. Thank you so much for being here. I I, I know uh, we were just talking about um, you just arrived to rally to... Uh, Along with my boss, Herb Lepore, uh, working on uh, some things with the uh, um, um, urological meeting uh, uh, of some sort. So anyway, thank you for doing this. Um, My pleasure, Gio. And thank you so much for having me on the
1: show. I really appreciate it.
0: No, it's my pleasure. Look – look I, I I think that it's almost like you know getting like the LeBron James of testosterone on so I, I it's almost like I can't believe that this is actually happening so you uh, I I'm, I am so pleased and 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 grateful all right testosterone <laughs> boy you know if you if you look behind me you'll find a familiar moment. I was noticing that
1: I was in the <laughs> yes
0: you know That's right it, it's you know, for the last 10 years, I've just been fascinated with that molecule. And I, I've looked at several of your scientific papers. How many papers you think you've written on the topic off the top of your head, by the way? Scientific papers. Uh, probably 80 or 90 papers. That's what I think. Because every t- yeah. when I PubMed uh, yeah. your name and testosterone, it was about 100 or so papers. I was like, well, I can't read all of them. Um, yeah. You know, fascinating molecule. Um, I think in part because I'm a man, and 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 I reached uh, middle age, uh, uh, and then I reached beyond middle age. I was like, oh, I've been testing it. Um, I see a lot of patients that I try to help um, with uh, with natural methods, um, and um, other patients who have needed external and TRT. So. Let's start with this. Um, give me a little bit of your background, uh, Mohit, if you don't mind, in terms of you went into urology and at some point you said, you know what? I like this andrology stuff. I'm going to go into testosterone treatment. What was that about? How did? When did that happen and why? Yeah.
1: So I was very fortunate because I trained at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And one of my mentors was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Larry Lipschultz, who is world renowned in the field of men's health and infertility and sexual dysfunction. And I had the opportunity to do a fellowship with him. And uh, when I finished my fellowship, he asked me to join him. So this was in 2007. And uh, since then, it's just been an incredible ride. You know, my focus has been still working, isn't he? Still working. He's extremely busy. Absolutely. Extremely talented um, and just a a great mentor. Um, But, you know, so uh, in 2007, I started a laboratory called the Laboratory for Andrology Research, which is just research basically on testosterone and ED and sexual dysfunction. And I just kept going with it. And uh, for the past 16 years, um, you know, we've just really most of our focus in research has been on testosterone.
0: Fascinating. So little give us a little bit. So give us the audience little like why? Why is testosterone even important? We, and we're going to stick. We know that women also uh, have testosterone. Let's stick to men. Why is it important in men, and um, and and let's start from there. What does it what what does it do to us in terms of make us feel? Uh, what's that manly feeling? Because testosterone is associated with male and and, and sure. male gender. What does so it do to I'm,
1: us? I'm going to focus on men, but I think we should also talk about women because I treat a tremendous amount of women with they testosterone. Do. They benefit also. Yes, absolutely, and they do. Really well, but let's think about this. So, testosterone has been around since 1935, that's Mm -hmm. been a long time, 1935. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, we've made better and better formulations. We have seven ways to treat men with testosterone. You can use an injection, you can use a patch, a pellet, there's a nasal spray. 2019, now we first got the, in the United States, the first oral testosterone that you can take twice a day. But most men prefer an injection. So what happens to them? So what some of the symptoms they can see in improvement? Energy. So many patients will say energy is important better. Fatigue libido, uh, erections, muscle mass, decreased fat deposition, improvements in depression. We wrote a paper on that as well. And some patients reported better sleep. We know that there's a physical benefit. We know that it can help with osteoporosis, osteopenia. Uh, that's been used in many patients uh, for uh, anemia in the old days. That's how you used to treat patients. to give them testosterone and you know, raise the hematocrit in those patients. But, um, you know, those are some of the benefits you'll see. Now, not every patient sees... All of those benefits, and sometimes patients come to me and say, "Give me the testosterone, and I want to fix all my problems." I say that's not going to happen. It's going to help you, uh, and if you combine the medication with lifestyle modification, and I call it the four pillars: it's diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And you combine that with the hormones, it's very synergistic, and patients tend to benefit
0: more. What is it? Testosterone that attaches to these receptors, or its metabolites like di- dihydrotestosterone (DHT)? We know it's a st- st- is a stronger attachment to the receptors. What if there's too much DHT? What component of it? Um, um, well, we'll talk about its relationship to the prostate in a second, but let's talk about its metabolites. It can. It does its own thing. It attaches to a receptor and does its own thing. You can expand on that. Also, its metabolites, it can convert into estrogen. If there's a lot of aromatase activity. That's the enzyme Absolutely. that converts testosterone to estrogen. Then DHT. When you look at these labs, what are you looking for, particularly when you have somebody on TRT? If there's a lot of conversion, what do you do? Take us through that process with a male, let's just say, 52-year-old male, no history of prostate cancer or anything, Low T, you put them on, t- on treatment. What's that process like?
1: Sure. So remember, the majority of testosterone is metabolized by the kidneys. So the majority, So as a, that's important. And why is that important? Because as I treat these patients for longer and long periods of time, as they start de- developing some renal insufficiency, I have to come down on the dose. The best example is when I use testosterone pellets. I have some men I've been treating for over ten years, and uh, you start at one dose, and as their kidney function starts to decline, you have to come down on the dose of the testosterone. So that's important. But what you described was how we metabolize uh, urine in terms, of, in terms of testosterone, in terms of other hormones. Six to eight percent of testosterone is. Be turned into DHT, so we will uh, convert six to eight percent of testosterone to DHT, which stands for dihydrotestosterone. Roughly 0.3 percent, very small, will be converted into estradiol. Now, why is that important? Because if you get too much estradiol, for example, you're more likely to get gynecomastia, breast tenderness, and I can say that uh, I do think that some patients will get an adverse event um in terms of sexual function and libido because i do think that too much estrogen is bad but i also think that too little estrogen is bad as well i call it the inverted u where the Mm -hmm. the the body really likes to be in the middle when it comes to estrogen so if someone has a very high level of testosterone and they're converting into estrogen uh, then one option is to either decrease the testosterone which men don't like to do or use an aromatase inhibitor which is a medication that blocks the conversion from testosterone to estradiol. The problem is that many clinicians will use uh, high levels of aromatase inhibitors, high doses, Um, but they just, and and what happens is a lot of these patients feel worse. Uh, You'll take their, say estradiol from 60 down to 10. And uh, you'll think that's a good thing because men don't need estrogen, but they do need estrogen. It's actually very important. A wonderful study in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that many believe that the uh, effects of testosterone are really estrogen derived the positive effects so don't shut them down all the way manage right. it you know given to, and then for dihydrotestosterone if you have too much testosterone you can get more dihydrotestosterone and the two main implications are male pattern balding which is a hair loss and the other one is bph or enlargement of the prostate um you know it, it, there is a saturation effect so having more dht doesn't necessarily cause greater worsening of Urinary symptoms. Um, but there is some data to suggest that higher DHT may increase hair loss. So that's why Finasteride is sold um, as uh, you know Proscar or uh, Propecia. Now, when I just know, want to say one more comment you. Yeah, one more yeah, go ahead. Sure. I, I'm really not a big fan of these medications, the, the finasteride medication. There yeah. are, you know, we were taught in medical school that it just blocked the conversion from testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, but that's not true. It blocks numerous pathways, up to 12 pathways, including what we call neurosteroids. And these neurosteroids, allopregnanolone, are responsible for anxiety, Depression, um, and there are many countries now that have put suicidal ideations on the package insert. Uh, there have been patients, many patients, that commit suicide in uh, after taking this medication. Uh, I had a trial myself here at Baylor, uh, and uh, two out of twenty-five patients committed suicide. So that's serious, you know. And so, something post
0: finasteride syndrome is real.
1: I think it's real. I think that there is much more than just T going to DHT, Right, it's much more that it it's not just T going to DHT and everything else is fine. There are other pathways that are blocked, patients with depression, anxiety. Um, you see it. And sometimes as men get older, they say, um, I'm taking Proscar and I'm starting to get ED, low libido, decreased muscle mass. Oh, that's normal because I'm older. Maybe it's you're getting older. Maybe it's the finasteride. Right. And so so I just think that, you know, I'm just not I just really tell patients to be cautious and, you know, try to avoid taking medication.
0: (laughs) That that brings me to hear you say that brings me uh, some level of pleasure because um, it's not that. um, So the most people think that I'm just sticking to a, a natural approach and that's it. Mostly, I'm sticking to what I know best, which is a natural and lifestyle approach. But I also care for what works, and I want—I don't want my patients to uh, be on things that probably can cause more harm than good. So there's been numerous times for a long time where I've said, look, I, I don't think finasteride is a good thing. And I've gotten them off, or I've, I've asked them to talk to their urologist about it, and I've gotten some pushback and, mm-hmm. and so forth, including – the potential risk of more advanced prostate cancer from the reduced trial and the, um, um, a few other trials. So, I uh, it, it brings me, so is there, I, 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 haven't seen, um, because a finasteride, I don't think it does such a great job in reducing urinary, uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. It, and that's the yeah, my primary yeah. reason why a lot of my patients would take it. And then B, because of all, all the, uh uh side effects that you've mentioned. Is there ever a reason? I mean hair loss. I mean even in, I, I mean is there ever first of all, obviously you can <laughs> maybe I have some bias <laughs> that you know like I had a patient today actually who is uh he was he actually is on actually very interesting case on TRT just diagnosed with a low risk Gleason six volume ten hmm. percent um and was put on finasteride because he converted quite a bit. And I, I said to him, I said, look, um, he, you know, for, for hair loss, I said, look, uh, uh, I could help you, you know, I can teach you how to shave your head in a very nice way that you, where you don't have to, you know, uh, nick yourself much, um, but I will get you off the finasteride. We're going to talk about um, active surveillance and some phases of prostate cancer in a little bit and whether or not, um, um, TRT is the right thing if they are hypogonadal, which I, I think I know the answer, but I want to let you talk about that. But going back to our scenario, is there ever a point that you say you you need finasteride? What, what yeah. ratio between total and DHT do you go by, and if you have any, and what ratio between total uh, testosterone and estradiol do you kind of gauge whether you need Uh, uh, aromatase inhibitor or 5-alpha-reductase inhibitor?
1: The the, the key point is that everyone is different, right? So you can't just use one number for everybody. So, for example, we have this number, 300 nanogram per deciliter of testosterone. And that means if you're below that number, the insurance company will cover you and you're qualified. So if you're 290, you're covered. But if you're 310, you're not. That doesn't make any sense, makes no sense at all. And so, so everyone's different. You and I have different levels where I would say we have a cut point, a set point where we feel better. And we did this study many years ago when I was just out of my fellowship, where we were looking at the blood of every man that came in and we looked at the sensitivity of the androgen receptors. You brought this up earlier. And we showed that those men who have more insensitive androgen receptors tend to need more testosterone to feel better, which makes sense. And those men with very sensitive androgen receptors tend to need less. So this concept that everyone has to have, be at this ratio and have to have this cut off, that's it, doesn't, it makes sense. You know, you we're all different so, and we all feel better at a different level.
0: That's interesting. So uh, one of uh, our colleagues, more of your colleague, uh, who, who we're trying to get on the podcast, Abe, uh, Abraham Morgenthaler, um, has posted on Twitter things like, you know, exercise doesn't really do anything to testosterone. There is some truth to that because uh, uh, it really depends on the dosage and the prescription uh, of the exercise. So if you're running marathons, that is ca- catastrophic to testosterone production. If you're doing other things, it's helpful. But one one research study shows, and um, it's a systemic review that the, and there's more androgen receptors after weightlifting. So there is no, um, well, actually, there is some evidence, but we'll lo- lo- stick to that study. There's no evidence that weightlifting or weight-resistant exercises increases testosterone. But what it does do, it increases the number of androgen receptors and the sensitivity of these androgen receptors, which then the outcome would be the same outcome that we all want. What what do you, is there a a, a clinical uh, laboratory approach to measure androgen receptors? Because to me, I thought it was always tissue biopsy. Yeah, so you
1: can measure androgen receptor sensitivity through a blood test, and what you do is you measure something called the CAG repeats, yep. uh, and 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 the longer the repeats the greater the insensitivity. So in my lab, I have, my lab, it's difficult, but my technician sits there and he just counts them. He just counsels and circles them. And then he says, okay, Kara, we have uh, 25 CAG repeats or 20, uh, 30 CAG, which is considered high, you know, or we have 19. So the, you can count the, the CAG repeats manually. Um, and we do it internally uh, for studies. Um, but others have done this also. I mean, Dr. Zitzman is in Germany. He's done the largest series looking at antigen receptors and CAG repeats and sensitivity, showing the same thing. That You know, we're all different. And, uh, you know, Tell us a little bit what CAG re- repeats are. Yeah, so basically, you're looking at amino acids within the antigen receptor and you're counting, and this is a specific sequence uh, CAG repeats, and you're counting them and if you have longer CAG repeats more commonly seen more insensitivity and so more uh, insensitivity insensitivity yeah, yeah. so yeah. think about geo world we're all, we're all very different and so you you have to you have to treat the patient clinically so when i give a patient testosterone and let's say their levels are 400 or 450 and that's the normal range and they say doctor i still have Low energy, low libido, erectile dysfunction. One uh, way of position could be, well, you're in the normal range. Let's stop because you're in the normal range and let's go somewhere else. Think about the Period.
0: End of story. Stop right there.
1: You're normal. The range is 300 to 1,000. You're 450. We're done. Or the other option is to say, let me raise you a little bit higher into the normal range and we may see some benefit. And I would say that some patients can see benefit at higher levels within the normal range. Now, part of this also is you have to look at the free testosterone because the body only cares about the free. It doesn't really care about the total. Hold, and-
0: that, hold that thought yeah. for a second, if you may, Mo, because uh, we're going to go there. Yeah, We're going to go into free testosterone. This measure, this ability to measure CHG repeats and uh, um, androgen receptor sensitivity is fascinating to me because I didn't know, A, that exists. I don't know if it's available to me, maybe to specialized clinics like yours and 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 i think they're because um the way i have tried to determine if they have normal let's just say androgen receptor count and normals in air quotes and or sensitivity is by process of elimination Mm -hmm. i I, so is this type of lab is a lab corp or quest or is it something that specialized in clinics like yours
1: yeah it's you know it's not commercially to my knowledge it's not commercially available and so what you have to do is and it's in my lab is a basic science lab so it's not a commercial lab Uh, Mm -hmm. we do experiments and studies so i am not aware of a commercial lab that looks at this um uh, and i think it's used now in clinical draws but Geo, one other option is to take a person to a higher level in the normal range and if they respond you could assume uh, that maybe they had more incentive receptors. I mean, there's a way to do it simply just by just a litmus test, just to say, okay, I'm going to take you to a higher level within the normal range. Even the AUA guidelines, you know, they recommend between the 450 and 600. So, you know, they you can take them higher to a normal level and see if they respond. So I think that, um, as I said earlier, look at the patient. If they are not responding, maybe taking them to a higher level, would have some benefit. Now, at some point... You can take it to a higher level and say, look, any higher than this, uh, there's got to be something else going on. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe it's your thyroid. Maybe something else is going on. But um, definitely can't have one number for everybody where they must feel good.
0: Can they, So this could be analogous to insulin resistance, so testosterone resistance. Yeah.
1: yeah. But all, all, all receptors have some degree of sensitivity. Right. You know, all receptors, insulin right. receptors, antigen receptors, and none of us are 100 percent, you know, like none of us. So think of it like we have variability on all these receptors right. in different degrees. So so sometimes with being at more insensitive receptors, you may require more stimulus to right. really get the response.
0: Any idea what optimizes sensitivity, androgen uh, receptor common. sensitivity and even quality? Yeah, or- I so there's numbers, a genetic component. Receptors, so, in so the our, genetic
1: component. So there's a strong genetic component which will dictate um, uh, the CAG repeats. Um, so I think that's that's probably one of the biggest. But you know, there's things you can do to work around these symptoms. And I still, we're going to go back to this over and over again. It's lifestyle modification, you know. And there are a lot of things when it comes to lifestyle modification that can raise your natural testosterone. So you are correct that exercise may have a, at modest, I mean, I I quote one study that showed 25 nanogram per deciliter increase in serum testosterone with exercise. 25 is not much. It was statistically significant, but it wasn't clinically significant. So 25. Um, But what does work, which is profound, is weight loss. Weight loss has such a profound impact on uh, improvements in testosterone. If you lose 10% of your body weight, just 10%, you'll see about 100 nanogram per deciliter increase in testosterone. If you lose 15% of your body weight, it's almost a 300 nanogram deciliter increase in, in uh, testosterone. So the best example is the bariatric surgery literature. When a patient will lose 15% of their body weight and see a, a significant increase in their uh, serum testosterone. So that, that data is around and now it's bidirectional because if you gain 10% of your body weight you'll lose 100 nanogram. If you gain fifteen percent, you'll lose about three hundred. So it's a bi-directional relationship. But you know, there's a there's a huge craze in the United States. And is
0: that before yeah. more aromatase activity?
1: Right, but there's other
0: mechanisms too. It's not only aromatase and
1: converting the fat convert so fat eats testosterone, converts into estrogen. That's aromatization. But there's other mechanisms, Leptins being secreted as well. There's other mechanisms that are causing you to have um, a decrease in serum testosterone. But um, there is a craze in the United States, and you've seen this before, Gio, uh, these um, GLP-1 medications, Ozempic, Manjaro, yeah. I mean, they're they're everywhere. And yeah. there's this large off-label use for weight loss, even yeah. though they're FDA-approved for diabetes, but there is a yeah. large off-label use for weight loss. And these patients are losing, you know, a significant amount of weight, but the testosterone levels are going up uh, as well. Now, it's not the Manjaro, it's the weight loss, right? Yeah. But, um, but weight loss does. Sleep does also remember we tend to make most of our testosterone when we sleep. If you're sleep deprived, there was a wonderful study. If you sleep deprived down to uh, five hours, eight, uh, less than it was like less than eight hours for five nights in a row, uh, there was a 15% decline in serum testosterone. So the sleep is critical. The less sleep you have, the lower the T will be. And the study, there was a fascinating one that the second half of the night is more important than the first half. Right. So if yeah. you get to sleep, the last four hours, then you'll tend to maintain. But if you don't sleep those last four hours, that's where you really see a hit in your um, serum testosterone. So, yeah, sleep. you
0: need to hit. You need to hit REM sleep, which is a second half of a second phase of the sleep cycle. Um, there's a lot of um, wearables. Uh, I I don't know if you're familiar with the Aura Ring. Of course. Um, yeah. So, you it's it's it's. I think it's probably the best technology to measure sleep. Uh, the other technologies to measure other things and heart rate, and uh, but um, and all my patients have aura rings or their apple, some wearable, and I get to measure it. So um, you can, and actually, it's a fascinating, you can actually see their um, sleep cycle. And those with, and of course, there's multiple many variables involved, but those that don't get enough REM sleep typically have lower testosterone. That's what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Clinically, it makes sense,
1: and then stress. Don't forget stress. Stress, you know, people there's
0: stress. It could be
1: physical stress, emotional stress, psychological. I mean, it it really takes a hit, and um, that's and that's due to the cortisol. Cortisol is the main mechanism, but it could be physical stress also. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of the ballerina effect. The ballerina effect is when a ballerina trains so hard physically that she'll stop menstruating or stop cycling. You know, you can have a huge impact. Um, the amount of physical stress you take on your body can in, in inhibit uh, your hormone production.
0: Absolutely. And very, very fascinating that we're having these um, lifestyle conversations because that's, that's certainly the area that I like to hang around in. Yeah. Um, uh, fa- and, and then stress has an effect on sleep. So now you have a double whammy, right? And, and right. so you never get to your uh, REM sleep and so forth. Um, and diet and exercise have an
1: effect on sleep. Right, and so Correct. if you, you know, just, they're all interrelated. All you know? interrelated.
0: All, yeah, those are the four pillars in in my mind as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, free testosterone, Mo. I don't know if you've seen this, and and I and and you know, I maybe you can speak on this. I think. You were said earlier that I kind of paused you because I wanted to have a longer conversation on free testosterone. You were saying, look, all that matters is free. Okay. So I, I, I definitely agree with that. But this is what I've seen. And 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 this is my assumption based on research. My assumption is that ultimately we need 2 to 3% free testosterone. So in a minute, you can correct me if I'm wrong with that assumption. Of course, it's based out of some research that I've seen. Number 2, I've seen guys with 700 testosterone but 1.5 free and I've seen guys with like 320 with like 2.2 free. So in my mind and and they're asymptomatic. So the guys that have you know 2 2% free and above they're asymptomatic. It's just an incidental finding and so forth. The guy that has 800, which and, 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 you know, I think you know this very well. A lot of a lot of docs don't know what to do with this information because they're saying, look, your, your testosterone is fine. It's 800, but they don't do the other workup. Then their freeze 1.5 is say, look at low libido and so forth. So, A, two to three percent. Is that what we want? And B, how often do you see this? I've even seen lower than 300, 280. But free is 2.2% is that is that person and assuming they're asymptomatic, you know, okay. And and we're talking from a health perspective, too, because there's all these other health benefits and even cardiovascular benefits. Is this person okay?
1: Yeah. So let's think about this. So, you know, how do we get free testosterone? So typically uh, the sex hormone binding lobin, which is SHBG, is made by the liver. And it's a very cle- clever mechanism. Think about this. So our body starts making from the liver a lot of SHBG. This SHBG then binds the testosterone and holds it. So we don't mm-hmm. see it. And then we have this free tea floating around. When times of trouble, when the free tea goes down, the body disassociates some of the SHBG. It's like storage and starts letting it go out free and it keeps us really in balance. So this SHBG is really keeping us in balance and giving us the tea or taking it away when we have too much or too little very nice system the problem is that there are conditions that can increase the shbd there's conditions that can decrease the shbg these are medical conditions such as hyperthyroid so hyperthyroid can increase the shbg hypothyroid can decrease the shbg Um, so 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 essentially this um, body is only looking at how much free we have but it's exactly what i said earlier everyone's different you can't say that we all need 1%, 2%. Some people need less. Some people need more. It's a clinically driven condition. So if someone is not seeing improvement in symptoms and they have an 800%, let's just say, but they have a very high elevated SHBG and the free T is low normal, though well, there's your answer, that person typically needs higher levels of total T so that we can get the free T up because the SHBG stays constant. I have some pretty clever patients. They say, doc, don't give me any testosterone. Just lower my SHBG. And they know what they're talking about. Can you give me the pill that lowers my SHBG? And I said, I don't have a pill. Although androgens, if I give you testosterone, will lower your SHBG, which is nice. because you're getting the T and it lowers your SHBG. Um, but again, that's kind of a constant number. So if you don't like your free T, the way to fix it is to raise your total T, which will then raise your free T, you
0: know? So, so do you want to, if there are mechanisms and there there are some potential natural, so boron, for example, can lower SHBG. This is um herbal root called nettle root that seems to lower SHBG. Dietary factors can lower SHBG. So do we want, so is the approach, so let me make sure I got this correct. It's 2.2. Is two percent to three percent more or less what we're looking for ultimately? Is that the right?
1: Two percent is typically what we see in the textbooks. Two percent right. free. You can have a plus or minus variation on that two percent, but about two percent free. Um, so you know, if and, that's so, so, and
0: sometimes to get you to that level, if it's lower, just increase the total. If you increase the increase total, you increase the free. You have to. Right. By definition, because if you don't like
1: your free T level, just increase the total. I do that. We use that in women quite a bit. Remember, in women, if they have a history of um, uh, oral uh, uh, contraceptive use, uh, birth control, what birth control does, it significantly, significantly increases SHBG levels. And there was a study many years ago by Erwin Goldstein that showed that some patients, if they take oral contraceptive pills longer than five years and they stop. They will still have permanently elevated SHPG levels, right? Suggesting that there could be some uh, uh, irreversible uh, sexual dysfunction for the fact that their free tea will be very low. So how do I manage these women? I have to raise the total T significantly in order to get a higher free tea. Um, so, so and when I said free tea earlier was everything, I guess a better way to phrase it is that free tea tends to be the best correlate with symptoms, Right? It's the best correlate. It's more sensitive to a patient's symptoms than the total T.
0: Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. You know, I always say no man wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I can't wait to get that prostate biopsy today, right? No man does. And the PSA test, we know, is not the greatest screening tool for prostate cancer. Well, now we have the EXODX prostate test, which is the only risk assessment tool available as an at-home collection kit so patients can provide a specimen in the comfort and convenience of their home. The EXO-DX prostate test has been included in the NCCN guidelines since 2019 for early detection of prostate cancer, and it's a simple, no digital rectal prostate exam required urine-based test for men over 40. Or, if there's a PSA roughly in that gray zone between two and ten nanograms per milliliter to determine if you indeed need a prostate biopsy. so ask your urologist about the exODx prostate test and how about as it relates to, look, uh, you know my libido, this is actually a real case, you know um you know two seventy eight total two point two percent free. No real symptoms, libido, fine, you know, no erectile problems. But he's asking me, look, should I raise my total just for longevity and health reasons? Muscularly, he's lean. He lifts weights. He's strong. No issues. He's just thinking, you know, heart disease, Alzheimer's, you know, should he raise his total while his percent free is 2.2?
1: Yeah, I'm not a big believer in treating people who are not symptomatic. Yeah. Now, you know, if someone says, I have great energy, great libido, everything is perfect, my T is 278, um, you know, then I, I don't think that's really justified. Now, there's some exceptions, you know, people who have extremely low levels, 90, 80, I mean, there could be something pathological going on. Then you want to look at bone sure. mineral density for sure, you know, because those patients have a higher rate of having osteoporosis, osteopenia, and uh, osteopenia is a symptom, right? So that is an indication to treat someone with testosterone. So I just think, you know, and some patients, um, you know, this is kind of this debatable zone. We may get into this, but this insulin resistance, diabetes, yeah. low T-inducing diabetes. Um, is there a way to give T and can it help prevent diabetes? I, I think that's a little controversial. Clearly, we do know that if you take away tea. You will induce a diabetic state, and how we have the best data on that is as urologists, we uh, give Lupron, and if you look at someone every three months on Lupron, every three months that hemoglobin A1c just skyrockets, you know. So, um,
0: yeah. So the listener, Lupron is a um, androgen deprivation therapy uh, given to patients with advanced uh, prostate cancer.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's well known. So I think that, you know, typically the scenario you gave a young man comes in or relatively young man comes in. He says, I have no symptoms. I have great energy, great libido. Everything's working
0: great. Muscular because I measure body fat and I do a calculation and they have enough muscle to leave leave him
1: alone. Leave him alone. He's not symptomatic.
0: You know, right. Right, unless you are in, or unless you belong to one of these you know, anti aging clinics, you never leave them alone. Everybody gets an <laughs> injection, <That's true. laughs> right? You're not leaving That's here true. without an injection at, That's true. You know, at some of these cl- clinics. I <laughs> weird what yeah. goes on out there sometimes. Yeah. Um, all right, so the the relationship with testosterone and or its metabolites and the prostate. Let's yes. go with let's go with BPH, just an enlarged prostate. So, mm-hmm. assumption, Geo's assumption, and again, everything is based on some experience or research. Right. You you give t-, t testosterone TRT to a patient, their PSA will go up almost inevitably, and their prostate will increase in size to some degree or another almost inevitably, probably because of co- a lot of conversion to DHT to some degree i agree with that but not
1: not completely no way okay so geo i'm just going to charge this up in one second so geo the way it works is this is that um, the we were taught in medical school that the more testosterone you give the greater the prostate growth and the greater the psa so more t greater growth greater psa but that is not true that is not true there is a saturation point and this is Uh, One of Abe's uh, and Abdul Trace's greatest inventions uh, discoveries about the saturation model. So at some point, your prostate doesn't care how high you raise that T. It's not going up. It's not going to grow. It's not going to change the PSA. It's done. Right.
0: That's the saturation. Is there an initial elevation in PSA? So today, TRT in three months, whatever, or six, two months, PSA goes up, but then it goes back down at some point.
1: No, there's an initial elevation in patients who are below the saturation point. So I'll give you an example. We did a very nice study showing that the saturation point was roughly around 250. And most people will say around 250 endogram per deciliter is a saturation point. Everyone's different. So you may be yeah. 220, I may be 250, 260, but let's say it's 250 for you. If your level of starting testosterone is below 250, let's say it's 200 and I put you on testosterone, I expect that PSA to go up and because it, it, it's basically a hypovolemic prostate trying to get to the euvolemic state. So that PSA will go up, and you may actually see a little bit of worsening of BPH because it will be a little bit of growth as well. But it, then it's going to plateau, and it's not going to go down. It's going to stay at that new number after three to six months and stay there. And so sometimes some clinicians get very nervous. I see the PSA rise. I stop the sure. testosterone. Then they see it come down, they start again, see it rise, it stop. Let it ride. We'll give it three to six months. Set your new baseline. Now, if you're starting testosterone is 295, you know, and you start T, I don't expect much of a PSA rise, right? And so where this gets really germane is when you have patients who have history prostate cancer. Radiation, you get gave them Lupron. Their testosterone is 50 and now they're coming to you because they want to start testosterone again. And you put them on it and you see that PSA. It's going to just go way up because you started at 50 and you're way below. And now you got to explain to them, hey, I know you're getting nervous because it's rising, um, but this is what's expected. So as long as you let them know it's expected going to find your new baseline, I think it's reasonable. But that population, is, it is controversial to treat those patients. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think,
0: yeah. I, I, I think, so I don't, Abe, Abe Morgenthaler is not seeing patients Anymore, so you're the one man standing. That you know, we he's still basically. seeing them. You
1: know, he does a lot of virtual visits, but he's still so active in research and lecturing. But research, you're right he, right; he really is. He's 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 uh, he'll never stop. He's amazing. So, um, but yes, so you know, we're still seeing these patients, and they come in after radiation. Doc put me on it. I have a discussion with them. I said, look, I'll put you on it, but I just want you to realize your PSA will go up. And we're just going to find the new baseline, and uh, and kind of go from there.
0: Great. No, the way uh, – well, I've seen – I think what I've seen is uh, um, as exactly the, the scenarios that I've seen where, where they're under 250, PSA goes up. There's uh, uh, imaging evidence that their prostate grew, no symptoms of any kind, and so they're fine, um, yeah. and then it, it does plateau. That's exactly the scenario where I've seen – that I've mm-hmm. seen. All right, so that's the ben- that's the benign version. So then let's move on to prostate cancer. So here we are. This guy would uh, on he's sixty years old, active. Well, he just got diagnosed with Gleason six. The conversation is, and he's been on TRT. The conversation is that there was no link uh, between the two, um, but the the so his doctors want to get him off of TRT. His his total is at eleven hundred, which is. Yeah, you know, not not horrible. He feels great. Um, and so the conversation is a I mean, he, again, he newly diagnosed. He's trying to figure out treatment. So my conversation with him is, look, no treatment is good treatment right now because it's a low risk. You're on active surveillance and put let, let's get you on a, the right uh, lifestyle protocol. And then is I'm saying, I don't I mean, you don't need to be off of tr- uh, TRT. So active surveillance in general you know they um, what's that process like do you need another biopsy to make sure there's no under sampling in a year to make sure that you know he doesn't have a gleason um, 8 somewhere or 7 somewhere before and there are and they are hypogonadal before you give him testosterone or you can act guy comes to you act surveillance he can get on trt right away what's a, what's your uh, protocol
1: Let's look at the, this in the historical perspective. So 23 years ago, when I started my residency, there was not much active surveillance. So pay, any patient who had prostate cancer had treatment. I mean, that's what we did. And then as the years went on, we realized that the majority of prostate cancer is clinically insignificant, meaning that they will die from something else. Yeah. And so uh, so that's why there's this huge movement of patients now on active surveillance, and they have low-grade cancer, low-volume cancer, and they're being followed. But this population is saying, I want my testosterone back, right? So now you're in this uh, uh, situation where you have patients who have cancer that are asking for testosterone, and it can be quite challenging because um, this is very controversial. And so most would say that this should be considered being done in a clinical trial setting uh, because they say, what, what, what can happen to these patients we don't know? Now, I just want you to think of something. Gio, you treat patients, or I I treat a lot of patients with testosterone, okay? I see a lot. And if you look at the instance of occult prostate cancer in the community, it's one in six. One in six men are just walking around with prostate cancer.
0: Yeah, and they don't don't know it. They don't know it, and
1: they'll die from something else. But did you know that there's never been a study to show that men being treated with testosterone – have a higher incidence of prostate cancer than those men not being treated with testosterone. Not one. Never been proven that those men treated. So much so that in 2018, the AUA guidelines said that there's no association between testosterone and prostate cancer, and that's a strong recommendation. But Gio, it's not prior
0: to the cancer. is not, uh, not the yes.
1: not No, no, no relation. No, so, t- testosterone causes. Now, there was a second bullet in the t- 2018 AUA guidelines and testosterone saying that if a man has a history of prostate cancer – we, we don't know about the risk-benefit ratio of putting them on testosterone as of yet. Because we don't have enough st- studies, which is fair. We don't, right? So, But but in general, the first bullet is testosterone does not increase the risk of prostate cancer. Now, of those men I told you, one in six men are walking on prostate cancer. And let's say I treat 60 men in my practice with testosterone. Gio, if I treat 60 men in my practice with testosterone, you know I'm giving 10 men with active prostate cancer, testosterone, I'm giving it to them, but nothing's happening. They're not lighting up. We don't see that in the, in the trials that men with testosterone have higher incidence. Or, so it's your kind of like your active surveillance testosterone group, essentially. Um, and so so we don't see that. So we, uh, A, myself, in 2011, bleak, we published a very small series of 13 patients on active surveillance. Uh, Gleason 3 plus 3, one patient at 3 plus 4, no increased risk of prostate cancer. Uh, even after one year follow-up. So I think that, you know, many patients are getting testosterone on active surveillance, if you will, um, and it's not lighting I mean, up. They just don't know it. They <laughs> just don't know it. But um, I do think that, you know, this does need to be studied in a more formalized fashion because right now all we have is r- small retrospective uh, studies, um, very, very small so
0: retrospective So, all right. The problem here is that Men are suffering from poor quality of life, likely unnecessarily, with low risk prostate cancer. But because these studies are not available, you know, how long can we, you know, you know, how long yeah. we gonna wait for these men to live, you know, poor quality of life? Probably to tell us at yeah. the end, I don't know, twenty years from now, whenever, uh, you know what, it's fine. You you can treat men safely. Yeah. You know, before we have a you know, a, a high volume type of a, a randomized clinical trial. So wh- what can a man do? What I've suggested to men is, look, I don't know who will treat you with when you have prostate cancer or a low risk, but I know it's, it's fine to have uh, and to be treated with TRT. You may have to sign numerous dotted lines and say, you know, you're not going to because, you know, we do live in a litigious society. So you may have to sign the dotted line to make sure if things go the other way that you don't have. So, you know, so what if a man is highly motivated? He says, look, I'm willing to do this. I need my quality of life." What should they do? Because the other thing is how many Dr. Caras are, there, are, are out there? I don't see him. Yeah. First of all, just think about this. If
1: if normal testosterone levels were so bad in men with active surveillance that we should castrate all men on active surveillance but we don't do that right we leave those normal men who have normal testosterone normal and we leave those with low low but we can't decide which one's okay and which is not but essentially those men who have normal testosterone on active surveillance are left alone you know And so, but you nailed it. So everything comes down to this concept that we've been using for many years in neurology, which is shared decision-making, which means that if you explain the risks and the benefits to the patient, um, and I personally do not believe that it's causing harm to the patient. In fact, there's some data to suggest that normalizing testosterone may be protective. And so right now, let's say you had metastatic prostate cancer uh, and you went to John Hopkins, they would treat you with high doses of testosterone. Think about that. It's called bipolar androgen therapy, back They are bipolar. treating, so in,
0: Meta- a, in metastatic a metastatic a research, uh,
1: research trial, but numerous clinical trials they published. This is by Dr. Dan Mead's group. Uh, first one came out in 2015, it's been eight years. Really interesting data, taking men who've had metastatic prostate cancer, resistance to standard of care, and giving them high doses of testosterone and what they find is that they see a reduction in the PSA, and they see a reduction in the metastatic disease. That's interesting. There are other studies that have come out recently. Uh, uh, Tom Allman's group at the University of Irvine showing that those men who received testosterone after prostate cancer surgery were less likely to have a recurrence of their prostate cancer than those men who had low testosterone levels. Hypogonadal men. Hypogonadal men, if you treat them, they're less likely. Stacey Loeb had a very nice uh, registry study out of Sweden showing that, you know, yeah, your institution, that, you know, those, um, it was a registry study. But again, uh, those men that took testosterone levels were much like, had higher testosterone levels, much more likely to have, less likely to have aggressive prostate
0: cancer. So there is. And and again, just to be clear, hypogonadal is less than 300. By that's the definition. Yes, that's the
1: definition. So that's interesting. So, so you're telling me if i have metastatic prostate cancer, you're in treatment with high doses of testosterone. Interesting. You know, and so, um, you know, and are they in the treating in a
0: bipolar BAT map? So bipolar androgen deprivation therapy, or is it just testosterone? So, wh- yeah, explain. Good point. I just want to make sure I have the great with, point.
1: You great you point. Know. What they do is they give an ant- Lupron, anti-androgen. Right. So the levels are very low. Your testosterone is very low. Then they give you high doses of testosterone, 400 milligrams IM of testosterone, and your testosterone will go spike up, but the end of the four weeks, it's gonna crash. And then you're already crashing because you're on lupins, so you're low. So then you give them 400 again, and then you crash. So what we call it is BAT, bipolar androgen therapy, going up and going down. And essentially, what some studies have shown—this is in the basic science literature—is that you can convert androgen uh, uh, insensitive uh, prostate cancer, hormone-resistant prostate cancer, to hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And when it's hormone-sensitive, and you switch it, and then you drop the T levels, um, then the PSA will start to go down. That's an interesting concept. I mean, there's a it's a whole fascinating concept. It science behind it and uh, the articles and the studies are are really very
0: fast and the patient so is the treatment simultaneous is it same day or is it how does it work Uh, so Lupron TRT same day
1: Lupron on then TRT let's say a day or two after essentially Uh, I don't know the exact time frame from Lupron to TRT but the patient remains on Lupron so let's say you put them on a six-month depot or you put them on a four-month depot but every month, you're giving these high doses of testosterone and then come down. Um, so, um, so that's, uh, you know, think about that. I mean, that is not – so they had a very, very uh, big trial called the Transformer trial. And the Transformer trial essentially looked mm-hmm. – I'm yeah, like, transformer trial. Great, great name. Uh, yeah, basically looking at patients who are getting enzalutamide, which is standard of care for patients who have uh, uh, hormone resistant prostate cancer, and so uh, um, and so they basically gave them enzalutamide or bat, right? So they flipped it. They said, "I'll either give you the standard of care or I'll just give you a high dose of testosterone," uh, showing that there's no difference in overall survival. And so um, so I think time for How changing, long were they looking at these? Uh, uh, these? were The difference was about three to four months once they were hormone-resistant. So it wasn't a significant amount of time. Um, I recall, I think it was three to four months, but I, I don't quote me on that. Is it an but ongoing I, study? No, it was published. It was published in 2021. It was a very good study, transformer trial. And this group, if you're going to follow a group, follow them. They're at a Hopkins Dr. Denmead, very, very interesting in how they're looking at testosterone as a therapy to treat metastatic prostate cancer.
0: That's fascinating. So again, yeah. um, I, they might be the only group. Is it, I mean, really, like I, I've asked and I've been looking for, yeah. and I've, and, and again with Dr. Morgan you know, it doesn't seem like he's seen um, a whole lot of patients currently because he's doing a lot. Of, he's focusing on research, and then, is then you every patient i have in texas i send them to you for testosterone but then you can only see in state so um it's good to know that uh uh, johns hopkins is on on you know on top of their game with trt with advanced prostate cancer Mm -hmm. that's that's amazing um great so lastly how long ago was the study that suggested or concluded that TRT increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. <laughs> no, so, good topic. go ahead and debunk that one for for us, if you yeah. can, and give well, us some clarity there.
1: Yeah, I will tell you that. So, I have to put this in the context of a story. So, you know, for many years, uh, up to 2010, um, numerous studies showed that testosterone, um, low testosterone, increases the risk for cardiovascular disease. That's been shown in many trials. And that um, giving testosterone may decrease risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as diabetes and obesity. Um, but it wasn't until 2010 when the Messaria um, study came out. And then there were three other studies, the ZOO study, the Finkel study, and the Vigan study. They came out in a short period of time between 2010 to 2015, all suggesting that there may be an increased risk of cardiovascular disease when you give men testosterone. Now, let me be very clear. Three of the four studies were retrospective, uh, no randomization. The Finkel study had no control group. Um, these are database mining tr- studies. Um, uh, Basari study was a randomized uh, a placebo-controlled trial. But the primary endpoint was not MACE. It was something else. But, again, the, the primary endpoint was not MACE in that trial. So, so – but then – so in 2015, the, the FDA said, look, we're going to make some changes to our label. Uh, and uh, we would like to also have a large trial to look at testosterone and cardiovascular disease. And the name of the trial is called the TRAVERSE trial. And the TRAVERSE trial, uh, 6,000 patients, five years, randomized placebo-controlled trial, and the endpoint is MACE. Does testosterone cause a heart attack? The great news is the test- TRAVERSE trial is complete. It's finished, um, and you know. Hopefully, in two thousand twenty-three, this year we will see some results, and that really is going to be a very important landmark trial. What's, what's your guess? Also, what's your guess, Mo? It's really, you know, my, my my guess based on prior literature is that testosterone does not increase cardiovascular disease, but it clearly, uh, we want to see what the results of the traverse trial.
0: How about a man with a history of cardiovascular disease? Can so a man with a history of cardiovascular, maybe they had, you know, a couple of. You know, maybe they had a heart attack and they had a few stents in. Uh, there are numerous meds yeah. and testosterone. So testosterone, let's not forget, t- testosterone can um, increase red blood cells,
1: right? It can cause erythrocytosis uh, in certain patients. And you're right. right. If it gets a little high, there may be a theoretical cardiovascular risk. Remember, before last year, there was never a study to show that if you give testosterone and the hematocrit goes up, that you could get a heart attack. Last year was the first study that came out, and that came out of the University of Miami. First study, it's a retrospective database study, and they showed it the first year, if you give testosterone, there may be a slight increase risk for cardiovascular events if your hematocrit goes up. But before then, it's never been shown. Mm. It was only shown in the polycythemia vera literature. So if someone has a malignancy, uh, 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 creating too many red blood cells, there is an increased cardiovascular, risk, but it's never been shown in what we call secondary polycythemia, which is I'm at a high altitude, I'm taking testosterone. You know, in other words, people in Colorado who are at high altitude who have higher uh, hematocytes, they're not more prone to getting heart attacks, right? And so, so this Traverse trial is very important. What's nice about the Traverse trial also is that it's looking at prostate cancer. It's looking at uh, diabetes, it's looking at depression, it's a big trial. So in 2023, I just want everyone to be aware, uh, this is the study to look out for.
0: Wow, I can't wait. So just to be clear, even in cases where there's a history of cardiovascular disease, that doesn't mean they're not candidates for TRT.
1: Well, let's think about the guidelines. So if someone has a heart attack, the AUA guideline says that you should wait three to six months before you start. Um, the endocrine guidelines say that after six months you can start, they're not saying you can't indefinitely start. They said, you know, even after a heart attack, mm. you can restart. Both guidelines say that, but you want to just wait a period of time. Uh, I don't, there's not a lot of science on where the period of time came from. So, mm. you know, just, it's just that this is what they recommend. Um, but uh, in that fashion, I, I do believe, I personally believe that men with lower testosterone levels are much more likely to to have a cardiovascular event now is that a causality or association because men with lower testosterone levels are more likely to have diabetes obesity metabolic syndrome and is that giving that increased risk for a cardiovascular event not the low T itself, maybe an indirect effect in association but men with lower testosterone levels i do believe are more likely to have a cardiovascular event
0: we'll see for the with the uh traverse so so that sometime in this year it will be published right i'm hoping i'm hoping yes fingers crossed fingers crossed what are the different methodologies to uh for trt so there is topical there is pellet there is injections and then we'll talk about the pills because that's though not new but this is probably the best form of pills that we've ever had because of how it's metabolized yes sir. am i wrong to think that I, i've never liked topical for numerous reasons one reason is because you can give it off to somebody else uh unintentionally in a lot, right but number two mo what i've so there is a, a great deal of 5-alpha reductase enzymes on the skin area. Yeah. So what I've seen, right, so these are patients that come in that are on topical TRT. So they are, you know, they have a topical of any kind, androgel, whatever. They feel worse. So they don't trust their doctor. They see me. So what I see is their DHT is super high and their testosterone is is, is really low. Explain that to, because I think that's a fascinating phenomenon, at least – You know, for the rest of us that uh, or for a lot of people that don't do this kind of work. And am I wrong to think that, yeah, I'm not a big fan of topicals?
1: Well, there's many reasons to not be a fan of topicals. So you nailed a couple. So transference, if someone has a pregnant wife or partner at home or a child at home, even grandparents or young children, I don't like to give a topical because there's an increased risk for transference. But the other reason is because, remember, you and I only get what gets penetrated in the skin. So if I give you uh, a million milligrams of testosterone and you get 0% penetrance, you get nothing, right? So it really is uh, a problem of skin penetration. And everybody has a different degree of skin penetration. And there were numerous studies showing that if a man starts a topical today, the attrition rate is 80% at the end of one year. So 80% of guys say, I can't do this for life. Every morning, rub this on, wait till it dries. And then, you know, you get some variability and then I may not even get a good level. So the movement has really been towards injectables, because they're easy, they're, um, they're cheap, but it is, you know, invasive. So some men can't do the injectables. Orals is a very good alternative. Just the fact it has to be taken twice a day. So it's a little bit more than, you know, a little more time consuming, but twice a day. But they work very well. And now the United States, we have three orals. So, you know, the orals have been out for almost 50 years, but it was never approved in the U.S. Because, um, and they're called undecanoate And those are the safe ones because they get metabolized by the lymphatic system. They don't go into the liver. The old testosterone actually went to the liver, and it used to cause liver toxicity and damage. But the new ones don't. And in the U.S. now, we have three that are FDA approved. um, Within uh, only the last – Couple of years, 2019. Yeah, so 2019, the first one got FDA approved, but they didn't go to market until 2020. Uh, and then last year, um, we had two approved, uh, and one is already to market. Uh, and one is still just FDA approved, and I, I suspect we're going to market pretty soon. So that's a pretty big deal. So three new orals in the US um, is a big deal. So you know, I think orals are great. I think injectables are great. I think many patients do like pellets because they're convenient. They come in three times a year, and they just get their pellet. And they explain p- pellets to our audience. What 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 happens in that scenario? Yeah. So these came out in 2008. And the first they were they've been around for a while. as compounded pellets, but the mm-hmm. first ones that were FDA approved came out 2000. uh, called Testapel. And essentially what the patient does, he comes in, lies on his side, and we make a numb up the area in the side of the buttocks or the side of the hip, and we make a three millimeter tiny incision. And these pellets look like little grains of rice, and you put them underneath the skin into the fat. and you put a steristip, and that's it. And they go off, and they release testosterone over four months, three to four months, and then they come back. For their next insertion, so very convenient. Particularly people who travel don't want to have to hassle of having an injection. It can be very convenient for them. And you know, every uh,
0: four months, yeah. most health insurances pay for only you know up to you know for, at about for the fourth fourth mark period of fourth month period. But you see a serious drop on month three, where they're like, "Hey, I need my I need my pellets." You do. So it seems so, like they get a serious drop way before yeah. four months. Yeah, so we show we publish this. We show that it's actually kind of
1: slow, slow, slow decline, and then between month three and four, it's a nosedive. Right, yeah. that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and so, and so, but we in the in Texas though. But uh, we have the ability to treat a lot of patients at three months, particularly Medicare patients. And that's really nice. It's a good service because these patients come in every three months and get it. And some men um, who feel that way may supplement with an injection or a gel the last month uh, to right. make it to the fourth month. We see that quite a bit as well.
0: Going back to the pills, because it's fascinating that they're so available. I don't think people actually know that. It's so new side effects gastro gi side effects if any yeah. um does it cause an increase in um, hematocrit like the injections what, what's the side effect profile with these orals? so
1: they're actually very favorable so the hematocrit um, erythrocytosis rates are less than five percent which is actually really low because if you look at an injectable like an injection it can be anywhere from 40 to 60 percent depending on if it's an older patient more likely to have erythrocytosis so, if someone has an elevation in their red blood cell count, you have a couple options. One is you can lower the dose, but most men don't want to lower the dose. Or you can switch them to a different formulation. For example, I used to switch them to a gel because the gel's rate of erythrocytosis is 8 to 12%. So, I dropped from 40 to 60%, I dropped it to 8 to 12% on gel. But many men don't like the gel. But the other option now is to switch them to an oral because their erythrocytosis rate is even lower. Now remember that in 2015 uh, if you want to get a, a testosterone product through the FDA, uh, you will most likely need to do ambulatory or some kind of blood pressure monitoring or testing. So uh, uh, these um, companies have done the testing, uh, and the uh, hypertension rate can be anywhere from five to seven percent uh, can see uh, start an antihypertensive or increase the dose. And you see about a five millimeter mercury increase in blood pressure. Not very significant, but it does increase. So I think that's one of the side effects. I don't think that's unique to the orals. I think they all increase blood pressure. Sure. It's a class effect. But sort of these medications had to do the testing because that's when the FDA started asking for the testing.
0: Excellent. Um, wow. <laughs> I think that we'll see um, a, a lot more of those type of prescriptions Uh uh, for the orals as opposed to any other form. Yeah. All you know, I think we're going to let you and I, uh, go to sleep. (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, listen, Mo, thank you so much. My pleasure, Gio. Let, uh, let our audience know how they can reach you and the best method of getting to know your work.
1: Well, um, a lot of it's on the website, and so it's uh, uh Dr. D R M O H I T KARA Doctor
0: and we'll have yep. that on our show notes. Yep. Yep, and that's where a lot of the
1: research we're doing, a lot of just the articles we published, just a great place to kind of keep uh, all the resources. And then one of the best parts is you can go to patient resources and there's links to different societies like the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, the ISSM, um, ISHWISH. These are great resources. If you want to learn more about these topics, um, just click that link.
0: Mo, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And again, I... I, I remember when you came to do a grand rounds at nyu i was like whoa that you blew uh, in our model here we are we're talking in the back with uh, some of our geology guys at nyu and i said i need to got i need to have you on the podcast so and i know how it could be challenging with your schedule and everything so thank you so much all the best to you and i hope to thank see you, you. I, I really hope to see you in a couple of weeks in dallas at the, yeah, the society absolutely meeting. thank you so much for having me on the show G. I really appreciate it i appreciate you thanks thanks mo Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and <laughs> it, ha- it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and Five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.